Good morning. Grab your Bibles and flip to the book of Hosea. Book of Hosea. There should be a black Bible in front of you, but I want you to find this book. Book of Hosea. So as you get there, as you get there, I want you to imagine a young man sitting at a port. So imagine a young man sitting at a port, looking with anticipation out at the sea. In a few minutes, he'll be getting on a boat to move to a new city. Over the past few years, he's been climbing to the top of the ladder in the city called Carthage. And as he reached the top, he realized it wasn't enough. And so, so he wants more than this. And he's, as he waits for the boat, uh, he's, he's feeling, he realizes that he has had this feeling before. Uh, this is not a unique feeling because he had, had originally came to Carthage thinking it was the mecca of opportunity and excitement. He thought Carthage was going to satisfy his longing for more. In this city, he, he discovered his professional calling. In this city, he, he, he had started the climb. In this city, he found her. But now, Carthage feels like a sewer water and something better is calling, and he's going to Rome. He, as, you, as you may expect, though, the story repeats itself. Uh, and in Rome, he finds longing for something more, something better. And job offer rolls around from Milan this time. And this city is where the emperor lives. And now Rome seems dingy. Milan is our Manhattan or London. Uh, Milan is a place where people obsess with two things, work and money. You go to Milan to climb, to achieve, to win. But as the story goes, he does climb and achieve and win. But that feeling of wanting more, that hollow hunger hasn't left him. Milan was supposed to be the end, uh, but he's not happy. And this man is St. Augustine that I just described. This is his story. He achieved more than any one of us in this room will ever achieve, yet remained empty, wanting more. He, wa- he wandered from port to port looking for something that satisfied, something that his soul could rest in. He, he was searching for a home. Hosea, the next minor prophet that we're studying, is, is a story about us. It's a story about us. It's a story about how we, like St. Augustine, search for home in all the wrong places until God calls us back to our true home, himself, to be with him and where our hearts can, can find true rest in his love. That's what this book is about. So let's jump in. Let's jump into the story of Hosea. Uh, Who is he and what is this book about? Well, Hosea 1.1 tells us. It says, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So Hosea is listing kings from both the northern and southern state. If you remember from our previous study, there was a split between uh, the nation of Israel, and there was a northern state and the southern state, and so he's listing both of these kings, and Hosea is considered to be the last prophet in the northern state. 
and with the king Jeroboam II. We have studied about him over and over. He's the last prophet from this, this, this state because, well, shortly after this, they get destroyed. The northern state gets destroyed by the Assyria. So this will be our last study of the northern state. From this moment on, we're going to move to the south and study the southern state and all of the, the things that happened in Judah. So these writings from Hosea are mostly poetry predicting this coming destruction from Assyria. But the book doesn't start with his accusation and warnings to the northern state. It starts with his life. In verse 2, God tells him to go, take to yourself a wife of Horthom and have children of Horthom. For a land commits great whoredom for forsaking the Lord. So Jonah, Jonah thought he had it bad, right? So we, we, we talked about Jonah and described how we thought, man, his story was awful. Well, this may be the worst calling we'll ever heard from a prophet, right? Go and marry a prostitute and have children with her. So he goes and marries Gomer who is a prostitute. The text is not clear whether she was a prostitute before marriage, but we know that she is after she leaves Hosea for another man. Beginning in verse 3, we see that she had three kids with Hosea. The first one was his, as the text says, she conceived and bore him a son, but the other two kids, the text no longer says she bore him a, a child. This seems to suggest that they're not his kids. She eventually leaves Hosea. She runs off to satisfy some kind of craving. And as we pick up the story in chapter 3, so just flip a page, um, to go to chapter 3, God is telling Hosea to go again, and this time to buy back his wife. This means that not only has she left Hosea to, to prostitute herself to another man, but now she is for sale by her current lover. The text doesn't go into detail as why she's for sale, but we can assume that she somehow lost her market value to her lover, and her owner slash lover wants to get rid of her. He, he's done with her. He is selling her into slavery, and she, wants, she, was, she was useless to him. So here she is being sold at a public auction, for men to see what they were buying, she would have been stripped of her clothes. Uh, she probably had her eyes closed uh, because uh, trying to save the last shred of dignity. The auction starts. Five shekels of silver. No, 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 another voice says eight. And as she is hearing these voices, in the midst of these voices, there's a familiar voice. It's her husband's voice. She's probably thinking, what are you doing? Uh, I left him. Is this to punish me? She hears sold for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethage of barley. So Hosea, her husband, comes to her and then covers up her nakedness. And right away, the text reveals her, his intention fully. In chapter 3, verse 3, and now this is the only time we hear uh, Hosea's voice. He says, I, Hosea said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I also be to you. So Hosea is saying something beautiful in this verse. He's saying, I want to dwell with you. I'm not buying you as a slave, but I'm buying you as a wife, and I'm buying you back into a marriage. 
But there's a, there's a period that we won't share a bed together. In fact, there will be a period where Gomer won't share a bed with anyone. Uh, because this is not a chick flick story, right? Uh, this is real, and they, they need to work some things out before everything will be fine. They need to work through the major, some, some of the few major things in their marriage. But after a little while, he says, I want to be with you, and I want to be yours, and you to be mine. Hosea's story ends, and from this moment, for the next 12 chapters, we see his writings writing to Israel, using his marriage as a symbol of God's relationship with Israel, showing how they are not content with God and are on the run, showing that they are searching for the soul's home, searching for meaning, but in all the wrong places. So God rescued Israel out of Egypt, right? God brought them to Mount Sinai. God entered to a covenant relationship with them. Then he, he brought them to this beautiful promised land. But instead of worshiping him, they de- dedicated their temple and their way to the false god Baal. Uh, they have been br- broken. They have broken their covenant with God. And God, and because of the covenant, has all the right to end that covenant, but instead God says in chapter 2, verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to, be, to, to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So this, this renewed pursuit of his people had nothing to do with the destruction that will happen Soon, uh, but it's speaking further into the future. There will be a Messiah from the line of David who will restore what is broken and brings God's blessing upon his people. And so these three chapters, these first three chapters, summarize or introduce the main themes for the rest of the book. Israel has rebelled and God will bring consequences for their rebellion But God's love and mercy are more powerful than Israel's sin. And chapters 4 through 11 contains Hosea's accusation towards Israel, but the section ends with hope. And then chapters 12 through 14 again contain his accusation, but they also end with hope. So in chapters 4 through 11, we see what's going on with people on the ground. It kind of zooms in through his poetry to see what is going on. So what is his accusation? The accusation are similar to last week when we studied Amos. Jeroboam II is still in charge, and they're a wealthy and prosperous nation at that moment. Amos called out their injustice towards the poor and their idolatry, right? And Hosea does the same thing. He calls out their injustice, but he focuses on their false worship. He says in chapter 4, there's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Here's the context of their false worship. The people think they know who God is and what relationship with God looks like but they got it all wrong. Uh, they, they are bringing sacrifices to Baal, the false god, and other gods at the same time as they're worshiping Yahweh and bring him sacrifices. You see, the sin during this time was not that they neglected Yahweh completely, like they didn't completely reject Yahweh, but that they have combined Yahweh with other gods. They, they wanted Yahweh to be one of the gods that they worship. In fact, they would try to apply Yahweh's name to acts of salvation for, to these false gods. 
uh, this kind of language started after the nation split. Do you remember King Jeroboam builds two temples and, and then that, that resembled and looked like Solomon's temple? And then he put two golden calves at the front and center and said, here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. You see, he's attributing Yahweh's act of salvation to idols. That only grows, that only grows, and the, and the people don't fully neglect Yahweh, but they combine and bring other gods into the temple. They, they trust other gods for some, some things, and they trust Yahweh for other things. And God is not fooled by this. He sees their gatherings as a show. And that's why he says there's no knowledge of God in the land. And to know God means to understand who he is and to experience his love. And their, their lives absolutely don't do that. Hosea then goes on to show their hypocrisy by pointing out the Ten Commandments and how they break them. He then focuses on their allegiance. allegiance. The fact that it's not only they're breaking God's commandments, but they trust their alliances with Egypt and Assyria more than they trust their God who took them out of Egypt and who provided for them in so many ways. Hosea warns them that this will lead to their destruction. Assyria will churn on you, he says. The book ends with Hosea revisiting their history. Uh, he wanted to show them that they're acting like their forefathers. He, they lie like Jacob lied. They rebel like, like their family rebelled in the wilderness. And they continue to rely on the corrupt kings like the story of King Saul. And the destruction is coming. God, judgment is coming. In the midst of this, chapter 11 and chapter 14, there's hope. Chapter 11 describes a father who loves his son, but the son rebels. Uh, but, but to the reader's surprise, the father shows mercy and compassion towards him. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? This Ephraim is another, another name for Israel. How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. So that's hope in the midst of judgment, right? Like up to this chapter, there's been like destruction is going to happen. There's, there's a voice of, of tenderness and compassion and mercy. And then chapter 14, Hosea again calls them to repentance, but ends this section with the true hope by talking about the true Messiah and his, and his restoration of all things. Let me read this from chapter 14, starting in verse, verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I'll be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like, like the lily. He shall take root like a tree of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like grain. They shall blossom like vine. vine. They, their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like the evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. And the book ends with Hosea alluding to Genesis 12 when God will bless Abraham and his descendants and through his children bless the nations. But the reason they'll be able to bless others is because God will provide a way. It won't be up to them alone. God will be the power behind it. And that's the book of Hosea.
That's the summary of it, right? We just ran very quickly to the end, or from the beginning to the end of this. But we started talking about how all of us, like St. Augustine, uh, and are on a journey searching for love and hope and home. That all of us are on this journey for love, hope, and home, and, and for us to truly find home, for us to truly find peace, for us to understand God and his love and mercy, for us to understand our wicked hearts, for us to truly find repentance and be healed, we need to dive into this metaphor of marriage. We need to understand our relationship with God in the context of marriage. Scripture describes our relationship with God in many ways, right? There's, there's many metaphors for this relationship. Even in this book, it alludes to some of them, right? A father and his son, a king and his subjects, a shepherd and his sheep. And all of those are helpful, right? So if you study and dive into those metaphors, they're very, very helpful. But maybe the most helpful metaphor for understanding our sin and our tendency to run is the metaphor of marriage, You don't have to be married to fully understand this metaphor because while human marriage is the imagery here, the real marriage is between God and his people, God and us. So marriage is a relationship of priority, right? Marriage is a relationship of priority. Before you are married, before you you get married, you are free to do whatever you want whenever you want to. But when you are married, your marriage has to come first if you want that relationship to be strong. Nothing should come before your spouse. Uh, This is something that is easy to say and that, uh, that everybody says your spouse should come first, but we are all selfish people and this reality is hard to live in. However, if both spouses, both spouses are giving each other first priority, then your marriage will thrive, or it should then thrive. The opposite is also true for this. When you don't give priority, it will not thrive, or it will probably not thrive. So in this, when, the, when this is the case in marriage, when, when you do give your marriage the top priority, it doesn't matter what happens in life then. Whenever the storms come in, you are able to move into those storms in strength because your marriage is strong. And the same thing happens the opposite also. If your marriage is weak and let's say everything else is pretty good, like you have good community, you have good friends, you have good job, you're financially doing fine, but you will live as, as if you are weak if your marriage is weak. Your life will be one of t- turmoil. That will be your reality, even though everything else is great. And God is saying, I should be your ultimate priority in your life. You you don't treat me as some kind of add-on and secondary. I'm either your everything or nothing. Uh, There's no no middle ground. Like uh, You can't kind of care about God. Like, there's no such thing as, like, yeah, I kind of care about God. Like, they, they, you have to, uh, you can't treat God as an add-on. God can't be an add-on. He's either everything or nothing. Like, you can't treat God as a hobby. Like, I go to God when I only like him. Like, that doesn't make sense. So, marriage is of first priority. Marriage is also a relationship of intimacy. 
And what I mean by this is that your spouse should know you more than any other person. If that's not the case, then we got a problem. This this should be the case. Your spouse should know you more intimately than anyone else. As a kid, uh, I could hide things from my parents. Like my parents didn't know everything about me. Uh, My friends didn't know everything about me. I could hide things from my friends. But in a healthy marriage, it's impossible to hide things. And notice that I said in a healthy marriage, it's impossible to hide things. Let me just share this, this example. Um, Sarah, my wife, knows everything, period. It's true. She knows everything, both in my life and just everything. Um, but I had a season. I had a season, and for, in the season, I just felt the busyness of life. I just felt the busyness of life, and the best way I can describe this this busyness of life is that I was just not fully present um, with with Sarah and others, right? So so I just kind of had this constant chatter in my mind, and and as as this constant chatter was going, I just would would be hanging out with Sarah as she's telling me about her day, and I'll be thinking about work, or I'll be thinking about some meeting that I went through, or my kids telling me about this drawing that they drew me and, and the family or something, and I'm going, that's cool, but my mind is thinking about something else. And so that's how it manifested, right? So that was my season. I was in this, and, and so I was physically there, but I would half listen while thinking about other things, um, and so about a week or so ago, a little bit longer now, and I was suddenly became conscious that I was living this way. Uh, I became more aware that like, hey, that is my pattern of life right now. I wasn't aware about it, but it became aware to me. And so I started reading a few books about this, and, and God has been pressing in and waking my heart to be present. And last week on a Thursday, so it's two Thursdays, whatever, a week ago, Sarah goes, welcome back. You're finally with us today. First of all, ouch. But so true, so true. She knows me. She knows me. I I, I can't hide anything from her. I didn't even fully know what was going on, but she knew that I was not fully present. She knew that. And so whenever I became fully present, she said, welcome back. I'm glad you're back with us again. And I was like, whoa, I didn't even know I was gone, right? But I was. And God says, you can't know me from afar. Yeah, I need need to be in every part of your life. You can't hold anything back from me. I know everything. This is why idolatry doesn't doesn't work with God. Uh, You're not fooling anyone when you worship something else. He knows. God knows. And as soon as you replace him with whatever you replace in your heart, he knows. He knows. You you might think you're fooling him, or or maybe you're fooling yourself, but even then, he's not fooled. Let me run through a couple examples of this. If your job is all you think about, he knows that. God is not fooled. If making money is your joy, he knows that. If the impression you make on other people is the world to you, he knows that. If getting married and having kids is all you think about, he knows that. If having a perfect marriage is what you truly desire, he knows. If some political cause is more important to you than God, he knows. 
He knows that something has replaced him and you are worshiping something else. He is not fooled. This is the reason when the Israelites try to bring other worship into the temple, God is not fooled. He's not fooled. He knew their hearts were far off. And he knows when our hearts are far off. And he says, come and know me the way I know you. You can't know me when you, your heart is far off. So marriage, marriage is a first priority. It's intimate. And lastly, marriage builds each, each person up. Here's what I mean by this. If your spouse says and really means it, right? So there's a difference between just saying and, and saying and really meaning. So if your spouse says and really means it, wow, you're so beautiful. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks because your spouse thinks you're beautiful. That's how you will feel, right? But the opposite is also true. Opposite is very uh, also true. If your spouse says you're ugly, even if the world and all your friends tell you that you're beautiful, you will feel ugly. The reason this is happening is because marriage has this kind of ability, this kind of power to build us up. And God is saying in marriage, I do that. I heal you. I'm like that. I tell you the truth about you. I build you up. And anytime you feel this happening in marriage, someone building you up, that's a glimpse of what I do to you. But here's the bad news. Here's the bad news about this whole conversation. When it comes to God and our relationship with him, we often treat God like Gomer treated Hosea. We cheat on God. We are the prostitute. We are the adulterous wife. We betray God. We are unfaithful to him. We turn away from him to look for other things that might satisfy for a second. In the midst of all of this, God says, I want to marry you. I want to be married to you. We are guilty, but God says, I want you. And until we get this, until we get this, until we realize that we are the gomer in this story, that we'll continue to struggle with our walk with God because this is the reality. God has every right to end his covenant with us, but he doesn't. He leans in and shows us mercy and kindness instead. We are naked, stripped of dignity, like Gomer at the auction. We are enslaved, but God clothed us. He takes us as his bride. He clothes us with his righteousness, even though we bring unrighteousness to the table. We are unfaithful to him, and he remains faithful to us. In fact, he buys us back. And he says, I want to dwell with you. You're no longer a slave, but my bride. I want to be with you. I want to be yours and you to be mine. My marriage with you will give you strength. My marriage with you will be intimate. My marriage with you will heal you. This is how God heals our wickedness. Through his love, while we were still sinners. Uh, though his, through his son dying instead of us, Gomer ultimately finds rest in Hosea's love. And, and this is how we heal from our wickedness. 
the love of the cross, and that, this is how we find the true rest. God buying us back. And the price for us is his own son. The hope that Hosea ends this book is the same hope that we rest in, the Messiah King whose name is Jesus. And this Messiah King provides a way to be with God through his own life, his life for ours. And because of this reality, he clothes us with his righteousness. He was the payment. He paid the price for our slavery with his life. What does the cross say then? Your sin, your wickedness, your idolatry, all your pursuits for other things that are trying to satisfy, all of this comes upon Jesus. It comes upon him. And he gives you his righteousness. That is love. That is his gift to us, a free gift of grace. And he says, I will covenant my, my covenant with you will remain forever. So as you hear this book, as we go through it, as we talk about marriage, as we look through all of these things, if you're still in the marketplace, if you're still trying to run today, if, if, you, if your soul has been restless searching for home, if you are trying to run to all these temporary places to satisfy your heart, may your eyes Open to the one who's buying you back today. May your heart hear this voice when it says sold and you open your eyes and you see Jesus there. Because that's what this book is teaching us. He bought you with the price of his son. You are his. So may we run to our true spouse. May, may, may our true spouse heal us May our true spouse satisfy our deepest longing. And may we live in light of that righteousness. May we live in light of his righteousness upon our lives. Let me pray for us.